Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 12th chapter of the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 12. It's page 636 in the church Bibles of that. It would be of some help to you this morning. Most of you know, but for those of you who don't, we've been working through Daniel verse by verse. We started late September last year. We took a Christmas break. We took an Easter break and maybe one or two in between. And so we're about near the end. I think all spared and Lord willing, we'll, we'll be able to finish Daniel chapter 12 um, next Sunday. And we're only going to read the first few verses of Daniel chapter 12. And then we're going to pray and ask God for his help. So... Verse 1, at that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress such as not happen from the beginning of nations until the end. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, close up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase in knowledge. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God give us understanding of it this morning. If you would, please, let's bow together. God, this has been a lively Sunday already, and we thank you for everything that was said and sung thus far. And as we take a moment, God, to consider your people, there are people that we know that need your help. We pray for Karen Storley's son-in-law. We pray that the surgery went well and that his recovery will be strong and full. We pray for Stephanie, God. We're thankful for the clarity that the doctors have been able to give her, and we ask for Jesus' sake that... um, the medicines and the process will work the way that you designed them to. God, again, we bring Mike before your throne of grace. He needs grace. He needs peace. He needs comfort. And he needs your help. And we pray to that in now, God. And we have four friends who are away, Arlene, Melanie, Dale, and Gail. They need good health. They need safe travels. They, they need to see Christ be preached and explained in the Philippines and that the gospel be established, and so your church as well. And so we pray that the conference will go well and every one of your purposes will be accomplished. And in your mercy, you'll bring them safely home to us with a good report. And then God, we do thank you for, for Bob and him becoming part of this congregation. It's a privilege to serve him. And so God, we thank you for him. Now God, as always, we need your help if we're gonna get this right this morning. So we would ask that your Holy Spirit would open our minds and open our hearts, that would give to us understanding and humility of heart so that we would, we'd be, we would become soft, God, before your truth. And then, God, our lives would be increasingly framed within its truth. We know, God, the end will come, either our end or this world's, and Daniel chapter 12 can help us to close out our time on this earth rightly. Therefore, God, our need is great, and we very much desire your help. And so, God, for Jesus' sake, we ask for these things now. Amen. 
Well, if your Bible is open, and I hope that it is, we're not left to wonder what this last chapter of Daniel is. You can see it in verse 4. We didn't read it, but you'll see it in verse 9 and verse 13. Verse 4, but you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Verse 9, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Verse 13, as for you, go your way till the end. You'll rest, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So clearly, this final chapter is concerned about the end of the world as we know it, which Probably you know, but it made me think of a song. And the song is by R.E.M. And R.E.M., if you know them, they were kind of like an underground band. They toured colleges in the late 70s, early 80s. And they made it big. They had a lot of good songs, I think. And in 2011, they split up. However, they recorded a song in 1987, which was partly a reaction to the kind of end of the world hysteria which marked that time. In fact, if you were alive then, you probably were aware of that. There were some pockets of Christianity who were quite certain that the, the end of the world as we know it was only moments away. And so my guess is you probably know the song. You may not admit it, but that's a, another issue. But the song is, it's the end of the world as we know it. And the chorus goes like this. It sings better than I'll say it, but anyway, it's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it, and then the last few words, and I feel fine. I feel fine. Now, I pulled our title for this talk from this song because I think it fits the final chapters of Daniel perfectly based on what we've learned already in chapters 10 and 11. Because remember, chapters 10, 11, and 12 is one final sequence. They're all tied together. So the intent here is something like Daniel, per God, saying, listen, time's not circular. Time is linear. Time, says the Bible, is headed somewhere, and it's going to cease and as time draws to a close, you'll see this if your Bible's open, verse 1, it's going to get much worse for the people of God. And frankly, it's for all people. A time of distress, verse 1, such has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. However, this is what we've been learning. Every age in the history of our world has these um, end of the world as we know it characteristics which is one of the points we learned of in chapter 11 of Daniel because as God began to show Daniel future events, which are to us now past historical events up to at least verse 35, if you grab a history book and you do your due diligence, you could be encouraged about the accuracy and the reliability of the Bible in chapter 11 about past history. Still, we learn that anti-God or anti-Christ forces, they do the same thing in every age. That was the big lesson in chapter 11 because they are in every age, and frankly, they show up in us, right? We call antichrist, anti-God behavior sin. That's what it is. Nevertheless, these anti-God forces work to destroy. And remember, this is their usual pattern. Uh, the evil one has no imagination. All throughout history, it's the same old line. They want to destroy the people of God. They want to destroy the worship of God. And they want to destroy the message of God to the world. You could say in our Old Testament understanding, they, they oppose the advancing of the gospel. They oppose the honor of Christ's name in the world. And they oppose the establishment of his church around the world. So, Daniel is saying, 
okay, the end is going to be worse. But it's been bad all throughout history for God's people. So here's the point. Don't get caught up in that kind of lunatic fringe, end of the world hype. Don't do it. Stabilize yourself. So Daniel's writing to stabilize God's people and say, in the time of the end, stand firm to what God's people should believe and stand in the way God's people should behave. So we must believe, as Daniel has been teaching us, that God is sovereign over the affairs of the world. We, we say this frequently. It may not seem so, but it is so. Daniel's own story is replete with examples of God's sovereignty and how God delivered Daniel from death time and time again. And so God's going to deliver his people in the same way from opposition, from persecution, especially the extreme persecution, which will mark the end of the age. And if your Bible's open, verse 2, and yeah, God will even deliver his people from the final enemy, the final enemy, worse than the anti-God, anti-Christ stuff, death. That's what God's people should believe. And we must behave in this kind of anti-God environment, which will become increasingly anti-God, as verse 1 says. We have to behave as wise people. Verse 3, okay, how do wise people behave? Well, they shine like the stars, leading many to righteousness. If you like, in our New Testament understanding, leading many people to Christ. That's, that is the voice of heaven, of ultimate wisdom. That's what God says. So, we remind ourselves that this book was written in the 6th century B.C. And it's a book whose first readers were in danger. Two dangers. They were in danger of pulling up and in danger of pulling out altogether. They were in danger of pulling up because it was getting hard for some of them to live for God because at that time, the good life was really good. And it was getting hard for them to live the way that God had prescribed. It would be really hard for them to lose all the good things. And pleasure, essentially, was tempting them to pull up. In other words, they were not persevering in the faith. They were in danger of pulling out because there were pockets of these intense pressure to abandon altogether the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible. And the line that was put before them was something like this. All these Antiochus Epiphany type guys, remember he was a really bad man, all these anti-God people, it was essentially the same line. Hey, listen, if you do not abandon your loyalties to your God, life's going to get really, really hard for you to live. Frankly, you may have to die. But you don't want to die, do you? So hey, what do you say we just lay off this Yahweh worship and this temple worship? You know, come on. And, and just lay off that and come on over to our team. We're not so bad. So Daniel writes then to give fresh encouragement to God's persecuted people to persevere to the end for, for either the end of their time or end of all time. Because as they persevere, the promise is God will give them everlasting life. That's what is main and plain here in chapter 12. It's something like this. I, God, promise everlasting life to my persecuted people. So persevere till the end. They persevere because they genuinely belong to God. Jesus, speaking of the end of the world as we know it, and all the hostility which will mark the end of the age, says some of the same thing. But the one who perseveres to the end will be saved. So Please don't think, we've been saying this, but it bears repeating. 
Please don't think that the reason why we have these last few apocalyptic chapters of Daniel is so that we could say, you know what, I got it all figured out. I got everything charted out for the end of the world as we know it. Because that's what a lot of people did. Hang on. Well, first of all, it's happened throughout all history. There were people telling about predicting the end of the world like in 500 AD. Okay? So, but this is our lifetime, at least for most of us. 1981, 1982, 1983, 1981, as we live it today. Listen to your Bible. This is New Testament, Romans 15, uh, verse 4. Paul says to the Roman church, everything written in the past, i.e. Daniel chapter 12, is written for our endurance, our encouragement, and to find stability in what God says. This is J.B. Phillips' translation of chapter 4, or excuse me, chapter 15, verse 4. For all those words which were written long ago are meant to teach us today that when we read in the scriptures of the endurance of men and women and of all the help that God gave them in those days, we may be encouraged to go on hoping in our own time. In our own time. So this is what we know about Daniel chapter 12. It was given for God's people. It was given, if you would, for the church. And God wants us to know, yeah, there's an end coming. However, these are our points this morning. Verse 1, we're going to be protected. Verse 2, we'll be resurrected. And verses 3 and 4, we need some instruction to know how to live out the remainder of our time on this earth. Listen to Sinclair Ferguson on this. It's actually, I think, wonderfully encouraging. In every stage of the unfolding drama of God's people, God has told his people, this is beautiful, we're not, we're not aimless here, clueless. God has told his people to live in light of what is promised, to live in light of what is coming, and live in light of the fact that we have a king. So again, we're not clueless, we're not aimless, we're not helpless, we're not hopeless, and we're not dependent on like new revelation. So someone comes down the pike and says, you know what, this is the way we ought to live because of the end. And we fall into that trap. And we dare not do this because this is where I think most of us might potentially be led astray. We might have some subjective notion about how we think God wants us to live as the end of our age, our age, our time on earth, or the end of the age comes to a close. And it's not anything like the revealed will of God through the scriptures. So we need to be careful. And as always, we need to pay attention to our Bibles. Three words. First one, protection. God's people will be protected. Protected. So the last days are terrible. The severity has never been felt as of yet. Jesus, again, quoting almost exactly from verse 1. This is Mark 13 and Matthew 24. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Paul, 
the apostle, to Timothy, his young pastor. Mark this, Timothy, in these last days, there will be terrible times. In other words, seasons, histories, which will be marked by awfulness. Yet, the intensity will be unmatched until the end of the world. In fact, at the end of the world, it's going to be massively worse. However, if your Bible's open, and I sure hope it's open, you'll notice that the first sentence of verse 1 and the last sentence of verse 1 gives a promise of help to the people of God. At that time, verse 1, Michael, the great protector of God's people, will arise. So, okay, yeah, the times are marked by unmatched persecution, but God's people can be certain they're going to be protected. If you like, this is divine protection. Michael is this angelic figure. You can read of him in chapter 10, verse 21 of Daniel. You can read of him in Jude, verse 9. And you can read of him in Revelation, chapter 12, in your New Testament. And this angelic figure is this great prince, and he's given the responsibility to protect the people of God. So, Think of it like this. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, the writer says, you know, be aware that you could be entertaining angels unaware, right? As we show hospitality to the world. Okay, in the same way, apparently we can receive angelic protection, invisible protection, we'll call it. And we're unaware of this. And so these protected people are given the description at the end of verse 1 as those whose names are found written in the book. So God has a copy book and the names of those who genuinely belong to him are in his copy book. And the description given here, which by the way is not unique to chapter 12, is that those who God delivers, specifically now in this final period, those whom he redeems are those whose names are written in his book. Now that begs the question, doesn't it? It's probably the most important question that anybody could ask you. Is your name written in the book? Since God has a book, and there's everything writing on the fact of your name being in that book, is your name found written in the book? Now, that's not a question you would want to hesitate with, would you? You pretty much know the answer, yes or no, right away. Any hesitation, you might need to think your answer through. Early on in my marriage, my wife and I, we had, um, you know, the marriage books where everybody signs their, their names, and often we would go through the book, and we would look at all the names in the book. It was fun to do. We had no money to do anything else, so <laughs> really, <laughs> so we got out the book. God has a book. Is your name written in the book? Not, are you religious? Not, I'm a long-standing member of the church. But is your name written in the book? I was reading about uh, Acts chapter 16. And there's this lady in Acts 16. Her name is Lydia. She's a nice lady. She, she's a great businesswoman. She has a big house. And she's very interested in God. In fact, Acts 16 said she actually went to prayer services. Can you imagine that? She actually went to the prayer service. But her name wasn't written in the book. She didn't belong to Jesus Christ. Nice lady, great businesswoman, great house, praise, interested in God. But her name is not written in the book. What changed? Well, this is what the Bible says. And actually, it was much the lesson that I was trying to give during Kids in the Kingdom. The Bible says this. Paul preached the gospel and the Lord opened her heart and she believed. The Lord opened her heart. 
It's the only way people can believe. And she believed on Christ. And so the same Lord who opens our hearts as we respond to the gospel is the same Lord who puts our name in the book. So here's the great comfort for the people of God. Yeah, you're going to face difficult persecution, but your, your protection is already grounded in the text. You will be protected as you find your name inscripted in the book. You're going to be delivered, even from death, as we'll learn in just a moment. Now, now think with me just for a second. All this horrible persecution is taking place, and there is promised divine, angelic protection for God's people, and every one's name who is inscripted in the book, probably the book of life, but we'll just say in the book, deliverance. So that the people of God, they can read Daniel and now they can know at the end of the world as we know it, that God, the the God who brought them in this predicament, he knows their names, he knows them personally, and will in some way deliver them past this predicament. So there's nothing to fear which would be the temptation of near death or end of the world type stuff. We sing a song sometimes, uh, he knows my name, right? He knows my name, he knows my every thought, he sees each tear that falls, and he, he hears me when I call. <laughs> what Christian doesn't need to hear that? Not just in the last days, but every day. Because that means a lot. And loved ones, as you think about this, doesn't this tone down the, hall, the kind of, holy smokes, the end is near. So you better buy gold, you better dig a deep hole, you better line it with carbon steel, and hang on and hide out, right? Hang on, hide out, buy a generator, get canned goods, get a can opener, and as they say in the South, you just got to fin for yourself, right? Fin for yourself, because there's no help. Well, that's a big fat lie. There's help. In fact, there's protection. That's number one. Number two, resurrection. So the flow of the text is genius. God is going to protect you and deliver you. And the deliverance is so strong that verse two of your Bible is open. Even those asleep in the dust of the earth, they're going to awake. They will be delivered from death in the resurrection. From the death which might come by way of persecution? Absolutely. Absolutely. Which is the flow that we need to understand. That's why this promise is so big. And so what we have in verse 2 is the clearest instruction from the whole of the Old Testament which speaks about the resurrection of the dead. And so once again, the Bible makes it very, very clear that human history is headed somewhere. And the Bible makes it equally clear that everyone is going somewhere. But everyone's not going to the same somewhere. Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting content. Now, the word multitudes is in context. The context, remember, is the end of the world as we know it. So these are the multitudes who will face death by way of the horror of the last days. The point for us in our New Testament understanding is that every body, B-O-D-Y, every body in the ground, in the dust of the earth, will be raised from the ground. However, in that resurrection, every body, B-O-D-Y, everybody is not destined for the same location. So there's a difference. In fact, here we are again. It is the ultimate difference the Bible speaks of. It's a difference between either your name is in the book or it's not in the book. Either you bow to the risen Christ, repentance and faith in him, or you have not. 
It's whether you have received forgiveness at the foot of the cross or you haven't. And loved ones, here's what the Bible says. The difference, that difference in time, if it remains that way, and it's going to be that way for all of eternity, okay? Which is part of the point being made here. And we have to understand this because you think about what people say about what happens after we die in our current climate. It's pretty much whatever happens at the end, it's all going to be set right when you die, especially if you're old, right? If you're really old and you're dying, it's all going to be right because how could God make a judgment on a very, very old person? I mean, that would be cruel. So people would say either, okay, either we're not going to exist past death or this is all we have or they'll say some will and some won't or they say some people, they say, well, we're going to have our own version of heaven or guess what? Everybody is in heaven. I mean, those are the things that we hear. Now, all of those views, they conflict with the main and plain teaching of the scriptures, which says, and here we are again, the difference which is set in time in or outside of Christ, if it remains that way, it's going to be that way for all eternity. That is the unescapable fact of the New Testament. The difference, again, which is set in time, in or out of Christ, being found in Christ or not, that is going to be, if it remains, what eternity will be. Now, most of you were here for the Easter service last week. This is what I said last week. I can say it this week because it's still true. Death is God's punishment for sin. When the Bible speaks of death in the context of the gospel, it means this. If we go into eternity without Christ, we will live forever, separated from God, being eternally punished for our rebellion and a refusal to acknowledge our need of a Savior. So the wrath of God fastened on, upon a guilty person, a polluted conscience, if you would, that's the fire that Jesus spoke of uh, that will never be quenched. It's the wrath of the living God on our refusal to accept his son as our savior. So death then isn't permanent as we would understand death, the sign of heaven. Everyone will be raised from the dead. Some people to everlasting life. Again, verse two, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there's two key words, right? Shame and contempt. Shame in the Hebrew has this idea of felt and heard disapproval and disappointment everlasting everlasting contempt it has this idea of both a physical and mental awareness of God's displeasure and anger forever like like if you would a parent who's angry with the child and the child knows they're guilty and the child knows they're wrong and the punishment is deserved and the punishment is coming in fact the punishment is there but the only difference is the child's punishment is temporal They're given another chance. Here, past death, the punishment is eternal. There are no more chances. That's, that's, if you would, the hard news of the gospel. Now, you need to know that that is incredibly hard for me to say for a few reasons, not because I doubt it in any way, but because I believe it completely. The testimony of the Old Testament is that the dead are still alive. New Testament, the dead are still alive. In the Old Testament, they understood that um, Sheol, those of you who know Sheol, was a place where they would be held until the gospel came. So the essence of the person is never, ever extinct. It will go on and it will go somewhere. Our bodies, right, either buried or cremated, we go to dust. Our souls, our essence will be immediately brought somewhere past death. 
either, again, with Christ or separated from God because we rejected Christ. And so even in that realm, before the ultimate resurrection of the body, it's going to be devoid of God's grace and God's blessing and God's presence, if you would, for those who reject Jesus Christ. Now, again, that's not easy to say. And to be really honest with you, less and less people believe that. But if you open your Bibles and take a look at it carefully, you'll find what I'm saying is true. Let me just give you one text for your homework, 1 Corinthians 15. And this, let me give you a text I'm going to read portion of now, Ecclesiastes chapter 12. It says, remember God before the silver cord is severed. So this is like as you're growing old, remember God before you get really, really old. Verse 7, and the dust returns to the ground it came from, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. After death, a new place, a new state, personhood retained, and that is at the heart of Christianity. Christians will be risen from the dead and be safely ushered into God's presence because of Jesus. Those who reject Jesus, they have an awful eternity. An awful eternity. Now here's the point. Old Testament readers, if you would, persecution's coming. They're faced with death. Here's your promise. You're going to be protected. You're going to be delivered. And guess what? You're going to be resurrected. So the worst your enemy can do to you is put you to death. But death has been defeated. And resurrection has been promised. Make sense? Final instruction, verses 3 and 4. Now again, you, you have to follow the flow of the text. So you get to verse 3, and if you think about verse 1 and 2, the flow goes something like this. Listen, child of God, you're going to receive divine protection from heaven in the last days. The last days, which will be the worst ever. But again, remember, you're going to be protected to the extent, verse 2, even if you die, even if you die, because you have persevered to the end, as you persevere to the end, it's going to be okay. There's a book, and it's God's copy book. And everyone's name found in the book will be delivered and be resurrected. In other words, you're not going to die. You'll be raised from the dead. So again, the worst these anti-God forces can do to you is kill you, but it's okay. Because you'll be risen from the dead. However, verse 2b, now this is where our interest needs to be picked up here. Some people won't. Some people will be raised to everlasting shame and contempt. Uh, We call it in the New Testament eternal damnation. Because they've rejected God and they've turned their back on him. But in light of that reality, now look at verse 3. In light of that reality, does verse 3 say this? Does it say, wow, glad that's not me? Does it say that? Does it say, well, they had it coming to them? (laughs) Does it say that? Does it say, well, frankly, it's none of my business. That kind of thing is personal. It's between them and God, and I have have no uh, way to intervene in that. Does it say that? No. Loved ones, that's what foolish people do. Okay, so what do wise people do? And by the way, the word wise in verse 3, it's translated prudent. It means those endowed with intellect. In other words, those who think correctly, 
People with, endowed with intellect, wise people have this focused mindset. Verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heavens and, heavens and lead many to righteousness. You see, that's the point of the text here. That's the point. This is the instruction given. As you persevere with God, you take heart. You will be protected. You will be delivered. And death will have no hold on you. You will be raised to be with God forever. So take heart in your persecution, even if it, means, if it means death. However, some people will not persevere. So in light of God's wisdom, verse 3, go after them. Win them. That's what it means in the mind of God to be wise, leading many to righteousness. Now you stay with me. That is not the wisdom of the world, is it? And sometimes that is not the wisdom or the activity of the church. And we could say without being unkind that most of us have never adjusted our way of life to that line of living. Most of us have either never won one or we won one or two. But the text says, Rob is the Hebrew word. It means a powerful populace. Wise people then are people who see everything as God would see it so that they can do everything as God would do it. In that way, they're wise. Listen to John Calvin. Not one of God's children ought to confine their attention privately to themselves. Everyone ought to interest themselves into the welfare of others. God has deposited the teaching of salvation with us not for the purpose of privately keeping it to ourselves, but of our pointing out the way of salvation to others. This, therefore, is the common duty of the children of God. Common duty, main and plain, to promote salvation to others. So we have a choice to make. Either we're going to view our lives through our own lens, or we're going to view our lives through the lens of God. And the difference here, per God says, the wise person, they view their life through this lens. And they work and they persevere until the end, winning many to righteousness. Now, loved ones, if you know your gospel, you will know that is the main and plain teaching of Jesus. Jesus often said, you've got to let go of your temporal interest. You've got to let go of always wanting bodily comfort. You've you got to let go of that. In fact, he made it so plain. In Mark chapter 8, verse 35, okay, he says, okay, listen. If you want to save your life, then lose it for the sake of the gospel. But if you don't, you don't, then just see everything through your own lens. It's a pretty simple lesson. Start leading many to righteousness. You're protected. If it gets bad, you'll be delivered. And if you die in your charge, it's okay. You're going to be resurrected. How could anyone deny the logic of these three verses? How can you do it? I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, this is so rational. It's not crazy. We're not just trying to say, Tell people about Jesus in some kind of like no context. The context is beautiful. People are going to die and they're going to be judged. My God, 
have some compassion on them and say something to them. 5.30 on Friday, and this is where we'll end. I was looking at some YouTube videos. It was good. It was religious work. Promise. And so, I've been lately listening to a lot of Rabbi, Rabbi Zacharias. This is what he said. The supreme ethic which God has given to us is love. It is the peak, listen carefully, it is the peak of all emotional and intellectual prowess. This thing we call love, which places value upon the other person as someone who is to be helped and someone who is to be protected. He goes on a little more, and essentially he says this. The world is a cold, dark place right now. And he says evangelism, at least in the context of the West, is on an all-time low. He asked this question. Could this be the reason? He quotes from Jesus. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Could you think of a colder way to treat some that we know outside of Jesus Christ, to not hound them in the best of Christian ways to faith in Jesus. That's real love. And that's real wisdom. It's not the wisdom of the world, but it's the wisdom of God. Thanks for your attention. Let's bow and pray together. Father, will you please give to us the grace we need in order that your Holy Spirit would strengthen us, beginning with myself, to prioritize and endure in the work of the gospel, that we may be given grace to look away from temporal short-sighted goals and pleasures and have compassion on the souls of men and women. Father, please forgive our neglect. And in this, may we never be ashamed of Jesus or his words. May we be able to see increasingly everything as you see things so that we can increasingly do everything as you would do things. And please then, God, prepare us for life's remaining duties and remind us, because of Jesus, of the joys and privileges which lie beyond the grave. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace, which brought us into your family. And Father, those that are here this morning, and they don't know of that grace, awaken them, God, to their need of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us, and may you bless your people this first day of the week. In Christ's name we pray, amen. God bless you. You're dismissed.